I come from a Cuban family. Uh, I grew up in Miami, but I grew up in a predominantly black, very poor neighborhood in Miami called Liberty City. From there, I went on to Atlanta, studied uh, at Emory University, and had the honor of being a congressional aide to civil rights hero, Congressman John Lewis. And after that, I went to Chicago and got my MBA and my law degree at the University of Chicago, where I also got to learn from another hero of mine, taught constitutional law by then Professor Barack Obama, and now the President of the United States. We fell in love while we were in graduate school. Now that's John and I, not the President and I. <laughs> we found great success in corporate America, uh, got married, bought our pretty house in our pretty suburb, had our two pretty little girls, and we're living out our picture-perfect, comfortable Cosby life. But when we analyzed the rest of the black community, we saw that things were getting worse and worse for most black people. We felt guilty about that. We felt bad about that. So we gave more to our black church. We gave more to the NAACP and the UNCF. Wasn't that enough? Philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause a philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice which make philanthropy necessary. Dr. Martin Luther King said that. Now, what is this economic injustice he was talking about? What are these circumstances he was talking about? In America, in the Asian community, the dollar circulates among the community's banks and retailers and professionals for about 28 days before it leaves the community. In uh, Jewish communities, that circulation period is about 19 days. In WASP communities, uh, predominantly white areas, if you will, uh, the dollar stays uh, 17 days. Uh, my Hispanic brothers and sisters keep their dollar for about a week. And in the black community, the community Dr. King was slain fighting for, we keep our dollar for six hours. Let me tell you what that means in real life terms. That means in Asian communities, uh, Asian kids get to see business owners who look like them every day, all the time. There are Asian banks and insurance companies and grocery stores all over the community, and those uh, businesses employ from the community, and the families take care of those businesses, and vice versa. Asian unemployment in America is at a low 4 to 5%. Most Asian Americans, over 50%, are self-employed or employed by Asian firms. That those circumstances, that economic and business growth, lead to high educational attainment, uh, there's uh, business and political power, low poverty, strong businesses, uh, low crime in Asian neighborhoods. Six hours in the black community, let me tell you what that means. That means that black kids can't see business owners who look like them every day. There are no black-owned grocery stores and dry cleaners and pharmacies and clothing stores locally owned in the black community. So the people there cannot get jobs, much less create jobs in the community. So black unemployment in places like Detroit and Gary and Oakland, sometimes 40%. And those circumstances lead to social problems like recidivism, high crime, high gang and drug activity, poverty. That's what's going on with those six hours. And those disparities cause the same kind of problems in the corporate space. 60% of the money that is spent with Asian suppliers in corporate America, so your Asian professional firms, Asian products you see on the shelves, used to be spent with black-owned businesses. And the same kind of shift has happened between Hispanic businesses and black-owned businesses. That's why when you go into a grocery store, you'll see whole aisles full of products coming from Asian companies, from Hispanic companies. So, 
let's go to the grocery store or the drugstore and see where the black-oriented products are. You go there, you'll see products like these. You'll see Spoten Wave and Less Jam and Smooth and Shine and Dark and Lovely and Strength of Nature and Dark and Natural and Stay Soft Fro. All those products, products that only black people buy every day. 100% black market. All those products are owned by L'Oreal, a company out of France. All those billions of dollars leave the black community. Some of that money could come back if L'Oreal had supplier diversity, if L'Oreal was doing any business with black-owned firms. L'Oreal only has black buyers, no black suppliers. Same deal with Hennessy. Hennessy, Wall Street Journal estimates between 60 to 80% of Hennessy's US market comes from the black community. That means that Hennessy closes down tomorrow without black consumers. Billions and billions of dollars going outside of the community. Hennessy has no black distributors, no black suppliers, does not advertise in black-owned media, or use black-owned advertising agencies. So, bottom line, black, uh, most of the businesses in black areas are not black-owned. Most of the products catering to black culture don't come from black companies. Black unemployment is highest among other, any group in America. Black firms are the highest employer of black people. So, I can give you more. Uh, Chicago, 60 KFC franchises, most of them full of black people and black money every day. None of them owned by black franchisees. I'm just trying to give you this picture of the circumstances of economic injustice Dr. King referred to. And what I hope we can do is I can get you to understand that if this is the picture of economic injustice he was thinking about, can we look at the opportunity or maybe the duty or at least the right to do something about that economic injustice? All kind of folks rally if a white racist shoots an unarmed black teen and then we protest a legal system that would let that killer go free. Go free. Now, will we rally? Will we come together if that unarmed black boy gets shot by a black gangbanger? And that happens because that black boy lives in a place that is so economically depleted, so poor, and the people there are so angry and so frustrated that that place has become a war zone overrun by drug activity. Will you protest for that economic injustice? Well, I conceived of and conducted the empowerment experiment, hoping that if we shared this story with you, you would do just that. And it was tough living like that. It was tough and fearful being called a racist, a Nazi, or the other N-word, dealing with death threats and hate mail, just because I decided for one year to do this experiment to explore the possibility of using my buying power to help my economically deprived community. It was humiliating taking CBS News and PBS NewsHour through the black areas of Chicago, trudging through all of that economic deprivation and all that social decay, every face we see black, watching the correspondents and camera crews shake their heads as we go store to store, door to door. Hi, we're doing a story on black businesses. May we meet your owner? Blocks and blocks, sometimes miles, dozens of businesses without engaging a black proprietor. It hurt as a black woman to see that. And I know I hurt some feelings to show that, but I really hoped that that year would bring you in and take you there
and show you things that you may not want to see, but you needed to see and hopefully really wanted to understand. I wanted you to see Jordan. I met this pretty little girl during that year. I would not have met Jordan or gone anywhere near where Jordan lives, Bronzeville on the south side of Chicago, had it not been for that year. Bronzeville is a dilapidated area, lots of crime, drugs, depression. Still, our young Jordan wanted to build a children's clothing store in Bronzeville, and she did with her mom and her grandmom and her grandfather's life savings. They called it Jordan's Closets, and it was the most beautiful children's store I've ever seen. They had, on Saturdays, they would invite little girls from the community for tea parties and book clubs. And on Sundays, her mom would host, uh, for teenagers in the community, modeling classes and a charm school. What a gem for Bronzeville. What a great place for me to spend my money. What a wonderful role model for the kids there. Jordan's Closets is closed. Another abandoned dream. Another destroyed dream in an abandoned space. And so it is in Bronzeville. Destroyed dream after destroyed dream. Abandoned space after abandoned space. These are the businesses that I supported during the empowerment experiment. All of them are gone. I took on this year. I did this year because the lack of economic and business power in the black community is the single most salient, destructive, and self-perpetuated problem the black community faces and still the most ignored. Our buying power, our businesses have always empowered and proved our community, but now, in an integrated society, somehow we're supposed to live without all of that. Somehow we're supposed to survive without the businesses and the buying power. In the early 1900s, shortly after emancipation, believe it or not, black businesses, the black community had amassed great business power. We had black Wall Streets, we had hospital systems, transportation systems, hotel chains, grocery stores, all kinds of businesses and professionals thrived. Hundreds of millions of dollars were created and circulated in the black community. Unemployment was statistically insignificant. The unemployment gap between whites and blacks in this country only widened in 1960 at integration. After slavery, more and more black towns became self-sustaining until integration or until they were burned down by racists. Vibrant neighborhoods were bombed, set on fire, then looted. These people had their homes and thriving economic thoroughfares burned to the ground because they endeavored to be self-sustaining. Over 90% of the lynchings of black men that happened during Jim Crow and Reconstruction were of business owners. What an awful paradox. We had, when we were uh, politically disenfranchised, we had economic power. We took that economic power for granted because we needed to fight for our civil rights. Now we're politically free, but economically insignificant. That's a tough trade-off to make. Martin Luther King thought about that trade-off. Martin Luther King wasn't just fighting for basic human rights. He fought for black businesses too. In a public address that he gave the day before he died, he said this, we gotta strengthen black institutions. I want you to take your money out of the banks downtown and put your money into Tri-State Bank. We need to have a bank in. You have six or seven insurance companies in Memphis. Put your insurance there. We need to have an insurance in. Dr. King died asking us to support these businesses and we didn't and they're gone. 
Those banks and insurance companies were the backbone of the black community, and they're gone now. Now I'm asking you, how does that make you feel? Black or not, as Americans, how does that make you feel? Do you wonder, like I do, what would have happened had those businesses thrived? Do you wonder what Detroit would look like now if we had those banks and insurance companies? So I ask you, what are we going to do about that? Dr. King wondered, what would you do? And he didn't know, just like I don't know. He said this, many white Americans of goodwill have never connected bigotry with economic exploitation. They have deplored prejudice, but tolerated or ignored economic injustice. Dr. King said that. Now, this is what they say about our black year. They say that we illuminated the roadblocks faced by black businesses in this racially divided economy, that this book will appeal to students of economics and sociology and anyone looking for inspiration to affect positive change in their community. How's this for inspiration? I did an hour-long interview on C-SPAN, and I took that time to mention um, this paper company called South Coast Paper that I support when I go to OfficeMax. I told everyone about the 60 people that have jobs that would not be there otherwise in Birmingham and South Carolina had it not been for this black-owned paper company and had it not been for OfficeMax taking a chance on this black-owned paper company. C-SPAN tells me it is one of the most popular segments. They ran it against the Republican National Convention me against Congressman Ryan, and people watch me. But the good news about that story, well, the better news about that story is that Office Max and South Coast Paper reported that their 800 number and their website were flooded by consumers looking for that paper. Twice a week, I go to, I leave my pristine suburb and I go to the west side of Chicago to go to uh, Forest Cleaners. Forest Cleaners is one of the few black-owned businesses owned by, um, a few, one of the few black-owned businesses in this all-black part of town. James Forrest is the owner. My kids call him Uncle James. James has been there for about three years and he just made his first hire. And an orphaned teenage boy who has spent a lot of time in juvenile detention and, and foster homes. But this is a great kid, and Uncle James knows that. So he has taken him in, become a father figure to him, and is showing him the business. The west side of Chicago needs that cleaners. Those boys need Uncle James. And I am helping Uncle James help those boys by supporting him during those 15 minutes a week. I gave a lecture in Boston. A woman named Debbie came. She uh, bought my book, read it, wrote me. We're friends now. Debbie asked for a website designer. I told her about a great business in Philadelphia. This kid is a, a tech, tech genius, and he's a great role model for the kids in that community. She used his business. She loves her site. She told all of her friends about this great black-owned business that they need to support. And they did support him. And he got a new corporate client because of Debbie. Did I mention that my friend Debbie is white? You see, you don't have to be an activist to do what I do. You don't have to live in a struggling community to empower it. We're all connected to this economy, so we can all do something about economic injustice. Your dollar can do just as much as mine, as Debbie's, to make our economy more fair and more inclusive. Mima, my mother, was just a Cuban farm girl, never graduated from high school, 
never learned how to drive, but she was one of the most brilliant and the bravest women I'll ever know. In 2008, right before we launched the empowerment experiment, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given three months to live. I was going to shut this whole thing down to be with Louisa. And Mima said, no, you have to do this. This will be the most important thing that you'll ever do. She is the reason that I'm on this stage today. And I wonder, now that Mima is gone, Mima lived 16 months with pancreatic cancer, one of the worst cancers there is, and she died in my arms, having witnessed her daughter complete the most important thing that she'll ever do. Mima died one month after the empowerment experiment. And that's wonderful that she got to see her daughter do that. But I still wonder, five years later, did I waste the last year of my mother's life fighting for something that's never going to change, never be penetrated? And because, not because the right man has his foot on our necks, but because no matter how much media attention we earn, no matter how much studies we generate, my people just won't come together again. And the larger community won't, because it's taboo, unite to create an integrated economy. The larger community won't fight for economic empowerment the way we did for civil and human rights. But then Mima will send me folks like Debbie, like Jordan, like Uncle James, and all those great people who went out to buy South Coast paper. And she shows me that it was indeed worth it. That it was indeed worth it. That's the point. All of these strangers came together to create an empowered community. Strangers connected by their sense of community. That's my black year. It's not the story of an extreme thing that I did for one year. It's the story of the little things we all can do every day. Thank you. Thank you.